once in a while, you need to step back and give some thought on how you're spending your time. Because when, when you get into bigger jobs, you could work 24 hours a day and not get everything done. So it's not a matter of working harder. You, you really can't work harder. It's a matter of what am I going to work on and how many hours am I going to work on it? Because you do need to shut it down. You do need to get your rest. You do need to get your exercise. You know, you, you need to take care of yourself because if you just jumped on everything all the time, you know, you, you, you'd burn out. Welcome to the Rising Leader Podcast, where being a high achiever doesn't necessarily equate to being an effective leader. Let's check to see if you're in the right place. If you're rising through the ranks of your organization so fast that your leadership skills need to grow as fast as your responsibilities, you're in the right place. If it seems you need different skills to lead your team or lead from within a group of talented, competitive peers, you're in the right place. If you're looking to become a trusted advisor to the CEO, you are definitely in the right place. So now that we know that you're in the right place, enjoy today's conversation. Before we begin, I have something for you. Have you not read Only Tens 2.0 yet? If you've been listening to the show, my guess is you have read it. Would you like to give away a copy to someone you care about, someone who's struggling with time and energy management, someone who needs to focus on the important things? Well, if you go to markjsilverman.com, click on the red resource buttons, we have put a free copy of Only Tens 2.0 for you to download, and you can upload it onto your electronic device of choice. I hope you enjoy. Years ago, when I left NetApp, Network Appliance, back then, I went to another really fast-growing startup, and I was at their sales kickoff. And I was sitting at the table while the leadership was speaking at the sales kickoff. And at my table, the people were trashing the leadership over and over. Everybody who stood up on stage was getting you know, just ridiculed at my table. I talked to my sales manager later. I said, you know, I came from NetApp. We would never do that. We were so in awe of our leadership. We had so much respect for them. And if we didn't, we, had, we were able to say something directly. And he said, Mark, you're not at NetApp anymore. That's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. That's a once-in-a-lifetime experience. No place is ever like that. I quit that job. <laughs> I couldn't work there. I couldn't work in an environment like that. My next job was at a little company called Data Domain. And some of my favorite leaders I've ever worked with were at that company. Uh, I've talked about them before. And uh, Kevin Haverty was the VP of Worldwide Sales when I was there. Actually, I think he was, you were probably VP of the East Coast, the Americas, right? Well, I started as the East Coast and then I, I eventually became the Americas. Right. And then Dave Schneider was Worldwide Sales. Exactly. So I work. I worked for a team of leaders that restored my faith again. It was like NetApp. It was like real people leading something that was important, that cared about each other, that were going into battle together. And I realized that there was bad leadership and there was good leadership. So I asked Kevin Haverty to be on the show to talk about those times. Officially, Kevin Haverty is the senior advisor to the CEO of ServiceNow, where I used to work. Kevin has over 25 years of experience in sales and leadership roles in the tech industry. He's previously served as vice president of sales for uh, the Americas of Data Domain, where I was, which was acquired by EMC. I got acquired by EMC three times in my career. So that was, that was, that was really fun. He's also served uh, about 10 years as Army National Guard, and he's a veteran of Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm serving in the Persian Gulf. So he knows leadership. Kevin, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Mark. It's great to be here with you. 
I start that off that way so that you are really clear on the impact that you had on my life and the impact you have on my clients. I talk to people from the experience I have with you and Dave Schneider and John Sapone and Tom Mendoza and teach them to be what I learned from you. I'm curious, you grew up in some of the toughest environments I know in the tech industry. Tell me about your leadership journey from a bag carrying sales guy to leadership. Yeah. So I had two paths to leadership. Because I was Army ROTC when I was in college, I actually got taught leadership by the Army. And the Army has an interesting uh, position on this, at least they did when I was in many years ago. They kind of dispelled the notion that they were born leaders. And they realized that, uh, yeah, there are people who are born charismatic and have personalities that are charismatic, but that's different than leadership. And so the Army boiled it down to something that's actually trainable and teachable. And so when I was in college, before I ever even really had a leadership position, I was taught the basis of leadership by the U.S. Army. And I was a sponge, and it served me well later on down the road when I finally did get a leadership position. So the way you generally become a leader in enterprise tech sales is you're usually the best sales rep on your team. And then they tap you on the shoulder and they want you to be the manager of the team. And the best sales rep isn't necessarily always the best leader. They are sometimes, but sometimes they're not because not all the skills are exactly transferable to leadership. So the first time I got tapped on the shoulder, I said, thanks, but no thanks. You know, I finally figured out how to be a successful sales rep at EMC, which was a tough place to break into. It was a a hardcore culture. I actually loved it personally because, you know, we expected to win. We had these expressions like our fair share is 100%, never, never, never give up. NetApp were our sworn enemies and, uh, you know, we wanted to, we wanted to beat them. And, uh, you know, it was, it was fun, but it was also relatively brutal. And so when I finally broke through and became, went from a struggling sales rep to a successful sales rep, I felt like, okay, I've arrived. I have good accounts. I know them well. I'm making my numbers. I know what I'm doing. Like I hit my stride. And, uh, and when they tapped me on the shoulder, I was not interested in breaking my stride and introducing risk and headaches into my life. So I said, thanks, but no thanks. And then they hired somebody else. This was a high growth, late nineties, right? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's a lot of opportunity happening all over the place. Sure enough, a year later, there was another opportunity and they tapped me on the shoulder again. And, um, I said, or I started to say, thanks, but no thanks. And they said, uh, you know, this time we're not asking, uh, we need you to do this. And so I was like, okay, if you, uh, if you're putting it that way, then, uh, you know, then I'm in, I'll, I'll take the assignment and Mark, it was tough, man. Like I, first thing you realize when you're a rep who's experienced and who's figured it out and they want you to be the manager, it's usually because you're the best rep. And when you're a rep, you're not really paying much attention to your peers. You know, you're talking to them, you're helping them out here and there, but you're not managing them. And then when you become the manager, all of a sudden you realize, wow, these other reps aren't as far along as I was. And so now. (laughs) And they're in charge of your destiny now because you don't don't have a hand specifically. You're a sales guy because you do this, you get that. Well, now you have to press levers, which are human beings. Totally. And, and, uh, and I made a lot of mistakes. My, my biggest mistake in hindsight was I felt like I was going to be the guy who made their jobs easier. I was going to help them be successful. So 
I was taking on their problems and trying to clear their desks so they could be quote unquote more productive. And I would kind of like get their troubles off their desk. And that's not the right move. You know, what I ended up doing was exhausting myself, frustrating myself, not really enabling them to learn. So I was stagnating their growth uh, and I was making a lot of mistakes and I wanted to quit. You know, after two quarters, I had never worked so hard and, and been less successful. And I, and I honestly uh, would lay awake at night thinking about how I go to my boss to tell him I want to go back to being a rep. Did you blame them or did you blame yourself? More myself. I just kind of felt like this isn't for me. You know, mm-hmm. this is not what I signed up for. I'm, I'm working harder and getting less results. But like the, the pride in me kind of kept me at it. And I kind of felt like I got to figure this out. If I can break through, this will actually be great. And so I changed my ways. I read a book about leadership. I learned the art of delegation. And uh, I learned the big, the big lesson on delegation was if they can do it 80% as good as you can, you got to hand it off. And then your job is to coach them up to close that 80% to 100%. You can't be a perfectionist. And so once I kind of learned that, and then I, I delegated or handed off or let people do their jobs, frankly. And then <laughs> I, I went from trying to do their jobs for them to helping them do their jobs. And the whole thing clicked in. And then all of a sudden, you know, I went from being a super sales rep running around trying to do everything to becoming a leader and delegating and getting that kind of benefit of the multiplier effect of having, you know, five salespeople hitting their stride and then the results that come along with that. So that was, uh, that was, that was kind of step one for me into leadership. And of all the, all the steps that I've made, that was the toughest one of all. That makes sense. So now, so you're a leader of frontline people trying to get a result. Now you move up the ladder and each step up of the ladder, you're a leader of other leaders. Yes. What challenges did that present? The next step up was also challenging. And um, part of it is, I think it's always challenging. Another part of it is it was a sign of the times. So remember, late 90s, dot com, boom, going. You know, people entering sales from all kinds of professions. You know, if you could fog a mirror, you could get a job in high tech sales in the late 90s. And we had a lot of mirror foggers that we hired. And so it was it was just kind of the blind leading the blind. I got promoted to area manager. So a manager of managers after being a frontline manager for one year. And then I had four rookie sales managers working for me who were reps that got promoted and then a lot of junior reps. And, uh, and I remember at the time, Bill Scannell uh, was running the East for EMC. He's now the president of Dell. He's another uh, sales leadership legend. Billy came down and traveled with me. And he said to me, I had just been promoted to area manager. And he said, I kind of feel bad for you. And I was like, why do you feel bad for me? And he goes, you just got promoted to area manager and you've only been a manager for one year. He goes, I was a manager for six years before I got promoted to area manager. He's like, I got to learn my job. I got to be very good at it before I got the next job. And, you know, he was right. It was um, it was tough. I kind of feel like it was the blind leading the blind. I didn't have a lot of experience as a frontline manager, never mind a second line manager. And and we were all trying to figure it out. And it got very, got very sloppy. What, what was your big what was your big surprise in leading other leaders? Well, the a big mistake that I made there was 
I wanted to kind of let them do their job. And I was a little bit lenient on inserting myself into the business. So I would kind of like ask, like, hey, let me know if I can help or would you like me to go here or there? And uh, and I learned pretty quick, like I was going to have to tell. So it was more like I was in Florida in these days. So it'd be like, hey, listen, I'm going to go to Jacksonville for the second week of March, fill my calendar with meetings. And I want to see the top three deals that are, you know, that are in the forecast. And I want to spend time with with all the reps. And, and so you have to assert yourself more. You don't manage a manager the way you manage a rep, but you don't let them manage themselves. And so, and there's a there's a fine line there. Like, how much do you let them be their own person? Because nobody wants to be micromanaged, especially when they're a manager themselves. So you need to let them establish themselves as a leader, um, lead with their own style, you know, have their own kind of cadence. But you also just can't let them do what they want. You have to insert, you know, your requirements to it and uh, and, and your authority and leadership to it. So that's try that's trial and error, and each one is different. So you have to you have to manage each one of them and coach each one of them differently. So you you're just you're just like spinning plates and juggling in all different directions. That's right, and and that's that's probably one of the biggest ones, Mark. What you just said. You got to treat everybody differently uh, when you're a leader, or if you want the better results. And and you know you hear sports coaches talk about this all the time. You know Bill Parcells managed Lawrence Taylor differently than he did the rest of the team. You know because he had a different personality. And some people you have to you have to push. Some people you have to ask actually help them slow down. You know and you have to tell them to relax or calm down. Other people need you know need a fire lit under them. So really getting to know your people and understanding what they respond to and what they need is really important. And the, and the way you do that, I find is, is talking to them, get to know them, you know, and, uh, and when you know people, you, you can, you can really help and lead them better. Amazing. Okay. So now you're moving up even further. How long did it take you to get your next promotion? Well, there was a bit of a setback, right? The, the dot-com boom blew up. And everybody kind of settled back into their places. So, uh, you know, that phenomenon of, uh, you know, being an area manager under five, uh, over the top of five managers and reps, uh, when the dot-com bubble burst, there were some layoffs and some drawing down and kind of I settled back into uh, a frontline manager role again. But this time, boy, I was... I was a much better frontline manager, having been a manager of frontline managers for a while. So that little view up, you know, for uh, whatever it was, a year, 18 months, really helped me come in. And and I think that year uh, when I stepped back into frontline sales manager might have been one of my most rewarding years because... It, it, again, it was a tough assignment. We were kind of rebuilding. We were, we were, kind yeah, we, were all, we were all reeling. So now, now you you were leading in good times. Now you're leading in tough times. That's a whole different ballgame. Yeah, it, it's it was like uh, you know the post World War II rebuilding of Europe. It was a mess in tech sales. Do, you know, you and I were both there. Not everybody who's listening to this were, but you know, the dot com bubble bursting left a really messy situation at all the enterprise tech companies. Not all of them made it. NetUp sure did, EMC sure did, but it was a complete rebuild. And then it was, uh, you know, going back to the basics. When times are really cranking, it's easier to sell because everybody's buying. When times get tough, 
you have to be good. You have to be selling maybe like these times right now, heading into some economic headwinds are a good example. You have to be really good at cost justifying, defining value, you know, listening, making sure you're solving problems. People aren't buying technology for technology's sake when, when things are tough. And, and that's certainly what, uh, what it was like post.com burst uh, early 2000s. How'd that improve your leadership skills leading in tough times? Well, it's kind of like you either improve them or you don't make it because, you know, people, companies were drawing down the size of their sales organizations. So there was a real sense of ur- urgency at all levels to deliver. And so there's nothing like, like a big challenge to really hone your focus. So I just learned how to focus and prioritize on the most important things, shed the things that don't matter and, you know, get the noise out of the way and really focus. That was, that was the biggest thing, Mark. Ruthless prioritization and focus on the things that are important and learning how to shed the things that are a distraction. How about helping people who are discouraged, you know, with those headwinds who may not have the fortitude, but they have the talent. How do you keep them moving forward when times are tough? I think real talk is honest as you can be because sales is emotional. Business is emotional. When you're failing, you have this kind of negative conversation with yourself and, and people do go there. I, I think like, hey, you know, I remember having some conversations like people being frustrated, like, boy, we, we just built this dot-com district. I just hired all these people and now we have to dismantle it. It's like, yeah, well, what are we going to do? You know, keep a district that's going to call on companies that don't exist anymore. Yeah, it sucks. But like, we got to, we got to move forward. Like we, we can't solve back. So I, I think it's, um, letting people vent and let them talk. Don't dismiss them because they're frustrated for a reason. You know, once they kind of have it off their chest, help them to see the reality and just kind of come to the conclusion, like, you know, we can't go back. So, you know, the only thing we can do is put our energy to solve forward. And that's what we got to focus on. Never be dismissive because people, you know, you ever hear that expression, feedback's a gift, even if it can be frustrating what you're hearing, you got to sometimes give the people the opportunity to say it, acknowledge it, and then kind of give them the other perspective and help them kind of come to that conclusion too. So it's always helpful to be heard. Even if you're wrong, you know, if you can be heard, then you can relax and listen. If you're not heard, it's really hard to listen to someone else. Yeah, totally. That's an incredible skill. All right. So let, let's let's take it up a notch where now you're responsible for big geographies of leaders. Yeah. Your influence and control really has to be targeted in the right places. How'd you make that leap? That's a whole nother ball game, right? So I handed off sales at ServiceNow about a year ago now before I moved into this advisor role. When I, when I handed it off, there were 4,500 people in my organization. That's a, that's a really big organization. And skills that you have to uh, lean on are, are totally different than being a frontline, secondline leader where you're more in control of, of the operations. So things like messaging and communications and how you interact with people become really important. So, you know, John Donahoe, who was our CEO here for, uh, for a couple, three years, he's now the CEO of Nike. John was a good mentor to me and, and he told me, communications is like such a big deal when you're running a bigger org. And so really embracing having talking points and staying on message and, um, you know, a little bit less just shooting from the hit and um, saying what you think, 
reinforcing things in a repeatable way so that people can consume them and they can remember them. So, you know, I, I got to the point where I'd have either a three point plan or a five point plan and I would reinforce it to the team through, a, we did a lot of video messaging, you know, quarterly, all hands calls, you know, over video as much as you feel like you're communicating a lot, you're really not communicating enough for the people who are on the receiving end. So communicate, 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 stay consistent and try and um, focus on the things that are important to help consider the audience, right? They, they got a lot coming at them. So if you're just communicating every idea in your head, you're going to, you're going to confuse people. So you got to kind of stick to some common themes that are important and, and really hit them hard. So CRO was actually chief repetition officer. <laughs> yeah. Well, how about that, uh, that rule of 10% uh, retention for salespeople? So said one way, sales reps remember 10% of what you tell them. Said another way, uh, you have to tell them 10 times before it really sinks in. And that, that's everybody. It's not just salespeople. That's, that's one of the biggest challenges I have for the leaders that I work with is why don't people listen? One, it's 100% your responsibility to communicate so they hear. Two, they have a lot coming at them. So that repetition, you know, this is important. Let me, let, let me have you understand, this is what's important in my world. And getting that through is, is such a, it's such a, you know, I shouldn't have to repeat myself. And you do. You do. And, and you know, speaking of communication, I, I have some pet peeves. People who work with me and know me well, know them well. Like, for example, a long email. I hate long emails. I never send them and I hardly ever read them because somebody hits you with this thoughtful email that's like, you know, three pages long. When I would get one of those, I'd be like, okay, what am I going to do now? Am I going to block out the next 15 minutes of my day and reprioritize my schedule and read this email, which I have to concentrate to really absorb it all? Or am I going to just continue to do my job? So, you know, what I would encourage people to do is I'd say, listen, you got to communicate to get your point across. Your job is not to impress everybody with your vocabulary or your knowledge of the subject matter or whatever else, because the people on the receiving end can't absorb that. So, you know, there's a real art to saying less and having it be memorable than just dumping the whole thing out there. You know, here, here's another shout out to a leader who I worked for and you worked for too, Frank Slootman. Frank would say, I need clarity of thought. And, and if people were running on too long, he would be like, give me your one priority, net it out, like just the different ways he could say it. But that's his kind of uh, one of his special powers is the ability to extract out the clarity of thought and not to just kind of give everything. And then, you know, everybody sits there kind of confused and bogged down. Right. Would you would you appreciate someone coming to you, one of your direct reports coming to you and saying, I'm curious, how do you like your information? Do you like it bullet pointed? Do you like do you want the details? Do you want the details? But the salient points put bolded out. Would you appreciate that kind of a conversation? Yes. Yes. Not only would I appreciate it, but if the other person didn't offer that, I would eventually get to telling him it. In fact, I had a leader who um was successful and very smart, but I couldn't take the way he communicated. You know, this was one of those email bomb people, it, email bombs in volume. And so I told him like, you gotta, you gotta net this out to me in executive summary fashion, because I can't consume this. And then the next day I got an email with 42 bullets 
And I call him back and I was like, that, that, that's not what I mean. You can't just put a <laughs> bullet in front of every sentence. Like you got to net it out. And he did. And so it made our working relationship better. I could be on the receiving end of his information. And I think I helped him kind of, you know, prioritize his thoughts and communicate in a more concise way. Nice. In the, in the Rising Leader program, we build a boss empathy map. You know, just take a half hour to Love understand that. your boss's values, what triggers him or her, what kind of communication do they like, you know, that kind of thing. Taking that time to understand how you're interacting will do volumes for your for your relationship with them. That, I think that's fantastic, Mark. You know, going back to my ROTC training when I was in college, we had a class, uh, the guy was a captain in the U.S. Army, and uh, I remember him teaching us. One of his classes was how to be a dynamic subordinate. He went out of his way to say, I'm not talking about like how to kiss your boss's ass. I'm talking about like how to be a great subordinate. And he explained to us the dynamic of what it's like to be a boss. You know, you're under pressure. There's a lot of things coming at you. And sometimes, especially when you're early in career, you don't really have a, an appreciation for that. And so you're, you're either just, you know, maybe passing in something late, passing in something incomplete, sending up too much information. Like the, the boss is trying to, get the job done and help everybody. And when people are doing those things underneath them, making their job harder, you know, Jack Walsh is the other guy, former CEO of GE. His advice for early in career people was make your jobs boss easier. Try to be the person who helps your boss solve some problems. And then that in and of itself will get you to the top of the stack rank if you're doing everything else well. So it's, it's an important lesson. I have one more question before we actually get to that point. So now, you know, with, with your span of control over continents, how do you keep the feedback that you need to make decisions, to make choices, to know what's working, what's not working in what areas? How do you set yourself up so that you kind of have your fingers on the pulse of things? Yeah, for me, it was to travel. I personally feel like I understand the business a lot better when I've spent some time with the people. And so a good business trip for me was a third of the time with employees, a third of the time with customers, and a third of the time with partners. So if I could go to a city, spend a week and accomplish that, then that was probably going to be a pretty good trip. And then that whole concept of, you know, windshield time. So, you know, me in the front seat of a car with a salesperson who's on the front line, having a conversation on the way to the appointment with the customer, having a conversation on the way back, the little conversation in the, in the office when, uh, you know, everybody gathers up and you have a little chat in the kitchen and then you go around, shake hands and talk with people. Like I would get insights in those meetings that never would have crossed my desk. I remember um, I was in Germany once and, and this SE told me in one of those just kind of like social uh, get to know you things in the office. He was like, this is many years ago. Did you realize our translation of German and our product is horrible? And I was like, no, what do you mean? And he's like, it literally is not grammatically correct. It makes our product look like a sub suboptimal product. And that was such an easy fix. I, I just went right back to the person who owned the product. And I said, we got to get professional translation in Germany. And it was, it was fixed in the next release. And I never would have known that. Right. And, 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 you know, it was just, he got right in my ear about it. And this was something that was frustrating him and his team and probably hurting our business that just wasn't making its way up to the proper levels to get addressed. So that's a big one for me. Doesn't mean you have to be on the road all the time. That obviously got kind of squashed during COVID. So during COVID, hopefully we won't have to go into another one of those situations. But 
you just do the same thing virtually. I would do virtual trips to Europe, for example, and I would be like, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I'm going to be in the UK. And so we're going to have meetings. We're going to do a town hall with the office. We're going to have meetings with UK customers only. And we, we would try our best to simulate a real trip. It's never as good, but you know, you, you, at least if you're doing it, you, you're, you're making some level of connection there. I have a few famous uh, musician friends who did that during COVID and just did concerts. <laughs> that was how they kept themselves, you know, and their and their bands alive. It was pretty rough. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the things that I teach in in my coaching and in in the Rising Leader program is how to be a trusted advisor. And you talked about that how to you know how to be a dynamic subordinate. So yeah. you know, every step of the way, you were in again rough and tumble environments like ServiceNow, EMC. Those are not easy environments. The yep. pursuit of success is relentless. You were able to speak truth to power and you know move up the ladder and create uh, this relationship where now you're the advisor to the CEO of you know a very consequential company. Tell me about that. How do you how do you become a trusted advisor? How do you become a dynamic supporter as you called it? Yeah. Well first off, attitude is really important. You can only control so many things. One of them is your attitude. So having a positive attitude is a big deal. Uh, when you're in a big company and the stakes are high and you're at a company that's like playing a win, you know, wants to be the defining enterprise software company of the 21st century like ServiceNow, that's high stakes. And so you have to have a positive attitude um, because it's so big and there's so much stuff going on. You can very easily find things to whine about or complain about or be negative about. So you can't afford to do that. It doesn't mean you ignore problems, but it's it's you know how you carry yourself. So be an optimist, focus on the positives, and address the negatives. Don't walk past problems, but uh, you know keep you know that right type of um, attitude because your people, uh, you know, sometimes their attitude is determined by how yours is. So that's one. The second one is um, be honest in your feedback. If it's if it's negative feedback. I find that that's always delivered best in private. You don't want to drop a bomb on your boss's desk in a meeting and suck all the oxygen out of the room. There are times when, you know, the whole team, it's appropriate for the whole team to be involved in the problem solve. But if, if there's something going on that needs correction or needs addressing, that should be a private conversation nine times out of 10. And, and so, and, and by the way, that's how trust is built. You know, when Bill McDermott came in to service now, it was October of 2019. So we had a great Q4, Q4 of 2019. The economy was rocking and rolling. No one had heard of COVID. You know, we started hearing maybe on the news. And then, you know, that very next quarter is when, you know, the COVID crisis hit and, you know, it was Bill's first full quarter uh, in the company. And so, you know, there were some tough conversations about where the number was going to land and what was happening to the business, you know, so it required candor. And, and I think, Bill and I developed a good relationship of people who trusted each other and shot straight with each other, you know, through that really difficult first quarter of COVID as like the world was changing before our eyes and we, we were trying to react to it. So, uh, you know, it's based on truth and it's based on trust. Those two things go hand in hand. And then, you know, like I said, a good attitude where you're not just going to throw problems up there and use them as excuses not to get it done. You, you're going to throw problems up there and then talk about what we're going to do to address the problems. So you, you've worked with some of the best that I know of. 
how do you thrive when you're working for someone who's not so great, maybe who has some anger issues or control issues or micromanagement issues? How do you thrive in that environment at that level? Fortunately, I haven't had to deal with that a lot. It's been a while since I didn't work for a world-class leader. And a constant through those three CEOs who I mentioned was David Schneider. You know, I worked for Schneider for like 15 years. Sometimes he was the buffer between me and those CEOs. But Dave and I also had that trusted relationship that we built over time where we could just kind of, first off, we saw eye to eye on how the business should be run. And uh, and we both were big believers in shooting straight and, uh, you know, not sweeping problems under the rug, just getting them on the table and addressing them. So it's been a while since I've had somebody with uh, with big flaws in leadership there. But if I were in that situation, I would probably handle it the same way. I would have private conversations with the person about the behaviors that they were having that I thought were derailing them or, or, or driving me crazy or, or whatever else. And, and if they could address it, you know, they'd be better for it. If they couldn't, then I probably wouldn't be working for them very long. You know, Mark, I went through this uh, journey where early in career, I would say, I hope my boss isn't a jerk. And then kind of mid-career, I'd be like, I'd, you know, I'm trying to find a job where I don't have to work for a jerk. To a certain point where I was like, I'm not working for any jerks. Like, I don't care. Like, I, life's too short. So, uh, but you can't always afford to do that because uh, you got bills to pay and, uh, you know, you, you got life to uh, lead. But uh, hopefully everybody can work themselves into the point where they, they can choose to be uh, choosy and not work for people who are uh, unreasonable. Because uh, how many hours a week do we work? The majority of our time, right? So if, if we're working with somebody who's making us miserable, you know, it means your whole life's going to be miserable. So you got to find a way to address it in a constructive way and and get it to change or, you know, force it to change another way. Nice. So what do you do to be in those environments and to have that kind of pressure and that kind of responsibility? You know, I remember my windshield time with you. Every single conversation I remember with you has always been supportive, warm, uh, instructive, all those things. How do you stay even keeled uh, how do you not have a chip on your shoulder? How do you not let the pressure boil over to the people that you're working with? What do you do internally to become that guy who can be grounded and centered and really the best you can for the people who work for you? Yeah. Well, thank you. I'll take that as a compliment. I, I appreciate that. Part of it is my nature. I am by nature a calm person. I, I literally have a low pulse. When I get my my <laughs> my checkup done, People will sometimes go like, wow, your pulse is really low. Are you some type of, uh, you know, athlete? And I'm like, no, not really. I just have, you know, I just have a steady low pulse. So I'm kind of an even keel guy and that's just who I am. So that, that part is just kind of natural for me. I also kind of have uh, an ability to compartmentalize and to switch things off and switch them on. So for example, on Saturday, I, I've never really had a hard time relaxing and not thinking about work. Now, you know, there there are exceptions to that. Sometimes there's like a really important deal and like it's going to close on Monday and, you know, you, you, you're really kind of thinking about it. But like, that's not my normal way. I can generally switch it off, clear my mind, do something that I like to do, like golf, watching any type of sports or, you know, hanging out with friends. And then, you know, when it's work time, I can click in and I can focus, you know, I can, I can go deep into uh, a problem in the days when I was running forecast calls, like I could go in and like talk about 
every deal in detail and go way down low and then come back out. So I can kind of really dive in to the work and get into the flow. And then I can extract, extract out. What, one thing I'm not great at is I'm not great at multitasking. Like I don't, I don't love being on one call and then taking another call and then, you know, making my plans for, you know, the weekend. And, you know, when all that stuff is coming at me, I, I just don't enjoy that at all. So I, I much prefer to kind of be in the moment, what I'm doing, get it addressed, move on and get into the next thing. And in hindsight, I think that actually served me well because yeah. I think multitasking actually means that you do a lot of things mediocre as opposed to kind of doing them more serially where you kind of give them, give them your proper focus and, and move on. How do you triage? How do you triage the fire hose? Uh, that's a great question. So how do you triage? I think once in a while you need to step back and give some thought on how you're spending your time. Because when, when you get into bigger jobs, you could work 24 hours a day and not get everything done. So it's not a matter of working harder. You, you really can't work harder. It's a matter of what am I going to work on and how many hours am I going to work on it? Because you do need to shut it down. You do need to get your rest. You do need to get your exercise. You know, you, you need to take care of yourself because if you just jumped on everything all the time, you know, you, you, you'd, you'd burn out. So um, I think the important thing on triaging is be thoughtful on the things you're going to work on. I, I'll give you an example. A few years ago, ServiceNow came up with uh, the top 10 priorities for the corporation. And then they built committees, you know, for each one. And then I got put on all 10 committees. And I was like, okay, time out. Like, you want me to run sales or do you want me to be a professional committee person? Because if I'm on these 10 committees, I don't have much time for anything else. So pick two. The, the reason that that they wanted me on those committees is they wanted the voice of the field. So it was, you know, it was good intentions, but I wasn't having it, you know? And so I said, pick two and they went to four and I, and I came back and said, pick two and I got on two. So, you, you know, you need to, you need to think about what are the things that are, that are important to me. And, and also there's a little bit of what do I like to do? You know, because when you, when you get to a certain level, you know, you can, you can pick and choose and you're not going to pick things that are going to make you miserable all the time. And then uh, there's also, where can I add value? Like where can my skills benefit the company? You know, nobody's good at everything. And, uh, and especially me. And if I'm, if I'm spending time on something where it's just taking up my time and I'm not really contributing, I'm wasting my own time and I'm not really helping the company. So um, it's that healthy look at your schedule, deciding, can I make an impact here? Is this something I like to do? And, um, you know, is this something that benefits the company? And then uh, learn how to say no in a constructive way and be constructive about it. I can't do that. Why don't you talk with so-and-so who works for me? They could probably represent my voice there or, you know, whatever. But I think that's a big part of it. And as you get better at that, I think that's when you really get better at, you know, being a productive leader. I think it takes a lot of self-esteem and worth to be able to say no, to be able to pick and, you know, to be able to actually push back and say, I can't do the job you actually pay me for and hired me for if I do all the things you say you want me to do. So, yeah. so having having that confidence to be able to have that conversation actually makes you better at your job uh, because they don't know how stretched you are. You know, when they ask you, they just know you're talented and want your input on all these things. And you're like, hold on a second, can't do it. Yeah. Totally agree, Mark. And you know, there's one other one that that I learned, and this was hard for me because um, 
you know, at my core, I'm a salesperson. And so even though I've kind of moved into this job or that job, I'm, I'm, I'm still a salesperson and I act like a salesperson underneath. Salespeople are usually not long range planners. Usually their failure mode is, I got to make this quarter. And so when you become a more senior leader, in fact, this probably applies to everybody. So I, I won't even put a, a senior leader tag on it. If you do long range planning on your personal things in your life, you're going to have a, a lot fewer collisions and a lot fewer angst when you have to decide, should I do this or that? And so what are the big rocks in your year? Uh, my son's graduating from UVM in May, and I will be in Burlington, Vermont for you know that long weekend. There's nothing that's going to overlap that, right? That's a big rock. If there were a wedding or if there were you know, maybe a golf tournament or whatever, whatever is something important in I your life. I love a wedding or a golf tournament. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Priorities, man. So you put those rocks out there and then you put the smaller ones in there and you kind of guard your calendar. And then when, when somebody's saying, hey, we're thinking about a QBR on February 14th, are you okay with that? And there's six months notice, that's easy to say, oh no, can we do it a week later or a week earlier? When it's three weeks away and you look at your calendar and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm supposed to do this and this. That's when you have these like things where you're missing out on a, a personal thing that's important to you because you don't want to miss out on a really important work thing. And it's all avoidable uh, or mostly avoidable if you, if you just plan better. So I think once a quarter doing that 12 month lookout and, uh, and protect your calendar. And then, you know, you get a lot fewer short-term collisions that, that really trip you up. That's, that's, I love, I love the way you prioritize that. That reminds me of a Frank, Frank Slootman story. I remember being at my first kickoff, just nervous, overwhelmed by all the people. I'm a rabid introvert. Uh, so being a kickoff was always overwhelming for me. And I got a call from my wife that my son had hurt himself. And he hurt himself pretty badly, but he was, he was going to be okay. He was fine. And she handled yeah. it, but he hurt himself. And I was on the phone with her and Frank Slootman comes out and he leans against the rail and he's just kind of looking out probably gathering his thoughts because he's going on stage next. And uh, he looks over at me and he's like, so what's going on with you? And I told him about my son. He says, get out of here. Go home now. Change your flight. That, that really moved me Like to work for those kinds of people. And that's been over and over in my career is really yeah. incredible. They put their money where their mouth is. I want you to drive really hard. I want you to work really hard for the goals that we set for you and remember your priorities. And what a winning combination. And you, know, you and I have known each other now probably 15 years, yep. at least looking back now, having those priorities, I am so grateful that I made sure that those milestones were in my life while I was chasing success. Yeah. Do you mind if I add a little bit to that? Because there's one other thing. I'll talk that, to you for uh, hours. Keep going. <laughs> all right. This is the one where as you're doing your long range plan, long range planning, you're smart about when you take your vacations. So if you're in the sales profession, we all know that uh, the quarter is a hockey stick, even though we've been trying to avoid the hockey stick since George Washington was a private, it's there. And so that means the third month of the quarter is going to be busy. And if you're in the sales pro profession, you should probably be working the third month of the quarter. Now, there's two reasons for that. One is it doesn't look good optically if you're not, you know, where's the captain of the ship? Oh, they're on vacation. And, uh, you know, the, the ship happens to be sinking. That's 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 not where you want to be. The other thing is when you take your vacation, you want to enjoy your vacation. You want to be able to do what I said earlier, 
switch work off and really enjoy the vacation with your friends or your family or, or whoever you're with. So, you know, you kind of sabotage yourself if you take your vacations at the wrong time. And then the, the way I, I generally describe it to people, I say, listen, this is your profession, right? So just like Tom Brady is a professional football player, right? He wouldn't be taking a vacation on a Sunday in October, right? Because that would be kind of crazy. Where's Tom Brady? Oh, he's on vacation on the big game against the Bills, right? So so just be smart about it. Protect the quarter and lay your vacations in around that. And uh, you're going to enjoy your vacations more because it's not the worst than being on vacation and being stuck on the phone on a deal or your boss or whatever else. And then, you know, your people who you're supposed to be spending time with are frustrated and irritated. So that that's all, all very avoidable if you do that kind of long range plan. I still can't tell you how many times I've closed a sale on the side of the road on my way to meet the meet my family at the beach or something or, or, or <laughs> sitting on the sidewalk out so back when the internet was spotty, right? Like sitting on the sidewalk outside of an arcade that had internet, you know, trying to close a deal at the beach. It's, 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 uh, you, you do what you need to do to, to get where you need to go, right? Yep. So Kevin, I really appreciate you sharing your your experience and wisdom. This was this was great. So if people want to get in touch with you, LinkedIn is a is a good place to uh Yeah, LinkedIn is great. I I read all all the messages um that I get through LinkedIn. It's uh that's perfectly fine and I'm happy to uh you know connect with uh with anybody who wants to uh, catch up. I love these topics. They're uh they're near and dear to me and uh I spent the majority of my my uh life struggling through them. And in some cases, figuring them out as I went. So uh, happy to uh, happy to share. Well, a, a struggle to you looked like grace under fire to the rest of us. So I appreciate you. <laughs> Kevin, thanks for taking the time. All right. Thanks, Mark. To everybody else, I really appreciate your time and attention. Hope you learned something today. I love you. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you for joining today's conversation. If you got value, please share the episode, give us a thumbs up, write us a review. And if there's a topic you'd like us to cover or a question that you have, send them my way. Look forward to connecting on the next episode of the Rising Leader Podcast.